0: Welcome back to Freud in Focus. This is Episode 3 of our series looking at Freud's 1930 text, Civilization and Its Discontents. Last week, Tom and I looked at Chapter 3 in which there was a promise to uncover the origin of civilization. Freud seemed to balance the instinct of the individual with finer concerns, like the flourishing of science, art, and religion. And he describes civilization as a process. It's nothing to be perfected. So he started chapter three with an apology, that he wasn't covering anything explicitly new and groundbreaking. But chapter four, which is where we begin today, starts with an admission of impossibility, saying, the task seems an immense one, and it is natural to feel diffidence in the face of it. So Freud begins to dabble in anthropology here, and he begins to explore the cultural formation of the importance of families. He says, One may suppose that the founding of families was connected with the fact that a moment came when the need for genital satisfaction no longer made its appearance, like a guest who drops in suddenly. And after his departure is heard of no more for a long time, but instead took up its quarters as a permanent lodger. Well, this leads us to the most extraordinary footnote. Tom, could you summarise the footnote for us and how does it impact the effect of reading?
1: Well, firstly, Jamie, we've, we've got this pseudo-apology again here, haven't we? Although the task is an immense one, Freud will offer us some conjectures. The word conjecture is important here, I think. It's as if Freud is asking us to suspend our disbelief for a while. We've gone from the commonplace and banal into the conjectural, so leapt, as it were, from one extreme of argumentation to another. We may, of course, sense a certain Socratic irony in both of these positions. So at the beginning of this chapter, Freud prepares us to leave the world of the commonplace behind and enter the conjectural. And in the huge footnote that has its roots on page 99 and its branches on page 100, we seem to be bordering on the outlandish. Freud attempts to take us back to a time when, as you read, Jamie, the need for sexual satisfaction became permanent rather than transient, leading to the forming of the first families. The footnote attempts to offer some theoretical speculation as to the circumstances surrounding this important development, which paved the way for the beginning of For Freud suggests that it was the diminution of the olfactory stimuli, connected with the menstrual cycle, and the corresponding increase in the importance of the visual sense which is key here. Humans had, at one time, walked on all fours, and it was the assumption of an upright gait which led to the genitals being on permanent display, and therefore a source of both continual excitation and also shame. The taboo on menstruation, Freud argues, is an instance of organic repression, a defence against a developmental stage that should have been overcome. So, when once olfactory stimuli caused excitement, now they produce disgust and are controlled and codified under a system of taboos. However. As we know from our reading of The Uncanny, we never completely rid ourselves of the influence and fascination of earlier stages of development. We are somehow haunted or pulled towards the shameful and infantile objects of early obsession. And we have to maintain both individual and collective defences in order to guard against their return. Freud speaks of the cultural trend towards cleanliness in this way, based in the desire to get rid of excreta. This trend is not found in the nursery, where excreta are not regarded as disgusting. In fact, they're they're treated as objects of value, the first gift the child offers to parents. You know, psychoanalysis has long since established the link between money and shit. How do we account for the disgust that these objects later provoke? This can't be explained by a rationalisation for Freud. It can't be that we simply learn that faeces can carry disease, although such ideas form a constellation of meaning around the cultural trend towards cleanliness. There must be a powerful force at work to produce such disgust the organic repression that sets in at the overcoming of a phase of development diverts a significant amount of instinctual energy in order to keep an earlier fascination safely under control. There's so much that could be said about this remarkable footnote. We're familiar with Freud's penchant for speculation, aren't we, from Beyond the Pleasure Principle and also what a crucial role speculation takes in psychoanalytic theorising. Freud takes another flight of Icarus here, I think, and the results are disturbing and profound. We have repression, instinct theory, early cultural formations, the importance of the visual in Enlightenment notions of rationality. We might also think of 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 Patrick Susskind's novel, Perfume, as a kind of fugue based on the theme of this footnote, an extended riff, if you will. You asked about the reading effect earlier, Jamie, as well. Whenever I've asked people about this in reading groups or in seminars, everyone describes a feeling of kind of dizziness, of disorientation. How do we find our way back into the text after reading that footnote? Chapter four is actually flanked by two extraordinary footnotes, this one and the one at the end of the chapter. They act as the skiller and charybdis between which we have to navigate a path as a reader. But rather than help us plot a smooth and steady course, they threaten us with shipwreck.
0: Mm -hmm. And we'll get to that one very shortly. So... After this first footnote, he he highlights his own very important text from 1913, Totem and Taboo. This text, very generally speaking, seeks to explore the roots of social structures and how they were shaped by quote-unquote primitive cultures. Could I ask you to elaborate on the importance of this text and why Freud brings it up here?
1: Well, Freud describes the forces that hold together the kind of proto-family, being the desire of the male not to give up his love object, the woman, and the equally strong desire of the woman not to give up her helpless children. However, in these proto-families that Freud refers to, one thing, he says, is missing. The arbitrary will of the father, which was unrestricted. As you say, Jamie, Freud develops his argument by referring to his 1913 work Totem and Taboo, a text that is both brilliant and controversial, in which he postulates the beginnings of human society in the act of the killing of the primal father. This primal father was both omnipotent and unpredictable, reigning over the primal horde with violence and fear. Owning all of the women in the horde and subjugating all of the sons. To free themselves from this yoke of tyranny, the sons in the horde gathered together, formed a band of brothers and killed their autocratic father. As their relationship with him had been conditioned by ambivalence, they both feared and loved him. The killing activated a release of guilt in the brothers. Unable to enjoy the satisfaction of their desire, the brothers set up certain taboos against killing and against incest, which were to be the basis of the first laws that were to lead to the appearance of communal life and later civilization per se. The totemic festival, which was the prototype for tragic theatre, was a way of experiencing the catharsis of the original event of killing, long since forgotten, at a kind of safe remove, or aesthetically. And this proved to be crucial for the functioning of early societies. Again, this outline of some of the themes in Totem and Taboo in no way does justice to the richness and brilliance of Freud's argument which is kind of steeped in late 19th and early 20th century anthropology of figures like Frazer, Darwin and Robertson Smith. I'd very much recommend our listeners to have a read of it. But I think it's important just to mention some of these themes at this point, though. Freud's focus shifts after the brief reference to Totem and Taboo in this chapter. But it will return, almost like the repressed, at a later point. To help illuminate the nature of discontentedness in civilization. Mm.
0: And straight after this, Freud delays his argument. He says Before we go on to inquire from what quarter an interference might arise, this recognition of love as one of the foundations of civilization may serve as an excuse for a digression which will enable us to fill in a gap which we left in an earlier discussion so yet again he's he's going down this uh, another digression where does freud lead us from here tom
1: i mean i think freud is being deliberately discursive here isn't he leading us along a path taking a detour and then returning to the original path but the knowledge we've gained in the process of that diversion is for freud decisive again This is exemplary of the Socratic method. So we return here to a gap left in an earlier discussion. We found another piece of our uncompleted jigsaw puzzle. Our highest satisfaction can be gained in sexual love. And yet in this we are at our most vulnerable, entirely dependent upon the object of our love. However, some people and Freud gives St Francis of Assisi as an example, are able to protect themselves against the vulnerability of this position by displacing the value of love from the fact of being loved to the activity of loving, of being the lover rather than the beloved. Taking advantage of the further displaceability of the libido, This love is transformed into aim-inhibited love, of friendship or affection, and its object is no longer the single person, but the whole of humanity. If our love is spread out in this way, we are much less likely to suffer the agony of unrequited love, although we are equally unlikely to enjoy the bliss of requited love. Whilst on face value we might think this technique of fulfilling the demands of the pleasure principle, which offers a religious dimension, could be the highest standpoint that humankind can reach, on closer inspection we can't help but notice a series of inconsistencies. A love which does not discriminate loses, according to Freud, part of its value. And also, clearly, not everyone is deserving of love. Having taken us on this detour, Freud returns to the main topic. The family structure is maintained and reinforced by both kinds of love. That is sexual love and affection or aim-inhibited love. For this reason, it will always come into conflict with the demands of civilization which requires that the family gives up the individual and allows them to enter into society. Indeed, the more love available in the family, the harder the pathway into society becomes. All cultures have their rites of passage, their initiations into society, which generally, well, in fact, always involve a struggle, an experience of pain and suffering or a kind of quest. So there is a continued antagonism between the family and society. And this antagonism is intensified due to the fact that civilization demands a large amount of psychical energy from the individual in order to further its own ends. We've seen how taboos were central to the mechanism of early societies, as they kept certain desires in check. And the establishment of laws and customs further this process. They withdraw ever more energy from the field of sexuality to help control and manage our potentially volatile instincts. Freud writes that in this respect, civilization behaves towards sexuality as a people or a stratum of its population does which has subjected another one to its exploitation. Fear of a revolt by the suppressed elements drives it to stricter precautionary measures. A high watermark in such a development has been reached in our Western European civilization. So by enforcing polygamy and heteronormativity upon individuals who are polymorphous perverse and seek pleasure in many different forms and by many different means. Civilization reinforces and extends the mutilation, in Freud's words, of our erotic lives that was instigated under the foundational taboo on incest, which developed as a result of the killing of the primal father.
0: Now, just to fast forward, uh, to the end of chapter 4 just going to read from the text. This, of course, is an extreme picture. Everybody knows that it has proved impossible to put into execution, even for quite short periods. Only the weaklings have submitted to such an extensive encroachment upon their sexual freedom, and stronger natures have only done so subject to a compensatory condition, which will be mentioned later. Civilised society has found itself obliged to pass over in silence many transgressions, which, according to its own rescripts, it ought to have punished. But we must not err on the other side and assume that because it does not achieve all its aims, such an attitude on the part of society is entirely innocuous. The sexual life of civilized man is notwithstanding, severely impaired, and it sometimes gives the impression of being in process of involution as a function. Just as our teeth and hair seem to be as organs. One is probably justified in assuming that its importance as a source of feelings of happiness and therefore in the fulfilment of our aim in life, has sensibly diminished. Sometimes one seems to perceive that it is not only the pressure of civilization, but something in the nature of the function itself which denies us full satisfaction and urges us along other paths. This may be wrong, it's hard to decide. That's a fascinating notion. You know, The sexual life gives the impression of being in process of involution as a function. But Tom, what, do, you know, what does this mean, really? And we have another humongous footnote that comes out of this. Could you give us some thoughts on that?
1: Well, yes, Jamie. I mean, this, this leads us, doesn't it, into the second of our mammoth footnotes. But yeah, let's, let's look firstly at the end of that paragraph you just read before we dive into it. There are many qualifiers here aren't there so the sexual life of man sometimes gives the impression of being in a process of involution one is probably justified in sometimes one seems to perceive and finally this may be wrong it's hard to decide these qualifiers seem to be paving the way for something it's very much in the manner of the speculation of speculation that freud adopted in the later chapters of Beyond the Pleasure Principle, if you'll remember when we analysed that text in our first podcast series. We have a clue here. There's something wrong in the sexual function itself. It's somehow atrophied, or it's in a process of involution as a function, as Freud writes. What's interesting here is that having described how civilization has forced our polymorphous perversity into certain controllable channels, we would expect that Freud would go on to suggest that the dismantling of these channels, these apparatus of control, would allow our sexuality to flourish. We would no longer be discontent. But he doesn't go there, does he? Although it appears that a loosening of the restrictions placed upon sexuality could benefit individuals, this is by no means a panacea. Sexuality in itself seems to be problematic. And now to that footnote. Human beings, Freud maintains, are psychically bisexual. Although sex is a biological fact and is extremely influential in mental life, It's hard to grasp psychologically. In fact, in psychical terms, the difference between the sexes fades away, Freud writes, to one of passivity, the female, and activity, the male. And he suggests that even these categories are somehow artificial. How often in the animal kingdom do we see that the female takes the active role sexually? We're far too ready, Freud suggests, to equate the male with activity and the female with passivity. If then we have both active and passive desires, according to the makeup of our psyche, and seek to satisfy both currents, how can we expect one object to fulfil this? These demands would naturally come into conflict if they were not kept apart and guided into particular channels that would help satisfy them. Referring back to the footnote that we discussed earlier in this episode, Freud returns to the theory of organic repression to explain why the satisfaction of the sexual instinct has become an impossibility, that it is forced into sublimations and displacements. The sense of repugnance, of disgust, that sexuality arises in us becomes unbearable for neurotics. who cannot live with the fact that we are born between urine and faeces. Or, as W.B. Yeats wrote, love has pitched his mansion in the place of excrement. What then to make of these two footnotes that seem to disrupt the text? To disorientate the reader to throw order into chaos we mentioned haunting earlier didn't we the return of the repressed it seems to me that these footnotes represent the return of the repressed of Wilhelm fleece the berlin nose and throat doctor whose correspondence with freud and their eventual break was so important to the establishment of psychoanalysis it was fleece who postulated that the seat of sexuality was the Nose, who foregrounded the importance of the cyclical nature of sexuality and even proposed the notion of psychical bisexuality. The return of the repressed, perhaps. As Freud would say, this may be wrong, it's hard to decide. But it certainly does show the importance of reading Freud's footnotes through.
0: Moving on uh, swiftly to chapter 5 now, He's discussing how the difficulty of cultural development has been treated as a general difficulty of of development. He traces this to what he calls the inertia of libido. And he outlines how a relationship, particularly a sexual one, is acceptable between two people, but then any more is considered disturbing. Why should civilization seek to disrupt this unit of two and aim to bring about ever greater unities? There must be another disturbing factor which propels this. What is this factor, and how does Freud develop his argument here?
1: In order to track down this disturbing factor that has so far failed to come to light, Freud brings under the microscope one of, in his words, the ideal demands of civilized society, namely the injunction to love thy neighbor as thyself. This demand, which Freud says is undoubtedly older than Christianity he seeks to treat naively. What can it mean to love thy neighbour as thyself? My love, Freud notes, is something valuable to me and is offered exclusively to those around me, my family and my friends. Indeed, my love is diluted to the point of nothingness if it is supposed to be extended to the whole of humanity with whom I am indifferent things get even more problematic when considering another of our cultural commandments, that of, love thine enemies. How can this be possible? The impossibility of fulfilling this commandment is, for Freud, evidence of its psychical efficacy. It is because we are not naturally gentle creatures that we possess an instinct to aggression and will take advantage of any opportunity to take advantage of our neighbor, then we need that we need such a commandment. Freud writes, As a result, their neighbor is for them not only a potential helper or sexual object, but also someone who tempts them to satisfy their aggressiveness on him, to exploit his capacity for work without compensation, to use him sexually without his consent, to seize his possessions, to humiliate him, to cause him pain, to torture and kill him. Homo homini lupus. This is extremely powerful writing, isn't it? I mean, Freud is almost cataloguing here a series of aggressive practices. Man is a wolf to man. Homo homini lupus. But almost more than a wolf, actually. Let's just consider that remarkable phrase someone who tempts them to satisfy their aggressiveness on him so the human being is a site of temptation for aggressiveness it's not that a person makes me angry but that my aggressiveness is somehow tempted by them the aggressiveness is already there it doesn't arise as a consequence of someone's actions but is somehow looking for an object upon which to satisfy itself. We're a long way here from ideas of behaviour, I think. We're moving towards the kind of properly psychoanalytic subject matter of instincts or drives.
0: So we found that disturbing factor, it's aggression. I'm just going to read now from uh, page 112 when Freud writes, The existence of this inclination to aggression, which we can detect in ourselves and justly assume to be present in others, is the factor which disturbs our relations with our neighbour and which forces civilization into such a high expenditure of energy. In consequence of this primary mutual hostility of human beings, civilised society is perpetually threatened with disintegration. The interest of work in common would not hold it together. Instinctual passions are stronger than reasonable interests. Civilization has to use its utmost efforts in order to set limits to man's aggressive instincts and to hold the manifestations of them in check by psychical reaction formations. Hence, therefore, the use of methods intended to incite people into identifications and aim-inhibited relationships of love. Hence the restriction upon sexual life, and hence, too, the ideal's commandments to love one's neighbour as oneself, a commandment which is really justified by the fact that nothing else runs so strongly counter to the original nature of man. In spite of every effort, these endeavours of civilization have not so far achieved very much. It hopes to prevent the crudest excesses of brutal violence by itself assuming the right to use violence against criminals. But the law is not able to lay hold of the more cautious and refined manifestations of human aggressiveness. The time comes when each of us has to give up, as illusions, the expectations which, in his youth, he pinned upon his fellow men and when he may learn how much difficulty and pain has been added to his life by their ill will. At the same time, it would be unfair to reproach civilization with trying to eliminate strife and competition from human activity. These things are undoubtedly indispensable, but opposition is not necessarily enmity. It is merely misused and made an occasion for enmity. This is a crucial paragraph. Would you say this is really the center of Freud's argument?
1: Yes, I think it probably is really. Um, There is, in Freud's words, a a primary mutual hostility of human beings. That means that civilization is perpetually threatened with disintegration. It's hard not to think of this in terms of the conflict uh, taking place currently in the Ukraine, really, isn't it? We often hear it said that it's unthinkable that this could be taking place in the 21st century. Haven't we learnt the lessons of the last century as a species? Why can't human beings learn to live in peace? If we think of aggression in the terms that Freud has sketched out here, as an instinct, and that, as he writes, instinctual passions are stronger than reasonable interests, then we can start to view the opposition between conflict and civilization in a new light. The injunction to love thy neighbor as thyself is just one of a series of reaction formations, psychical and cultural defenses against powerful instincts, which are geared towards their opposites. If aggressiveness is instinctual, then civilization is a defense against it whilst aggression normally waits for some provocation or puts itself at the service of another purpose, whose goal might be achieved by milder measures. Freud suggests that when circumstances allow the mental counterforces that normally inhibit it to be temporarily put out of action, aggression manifests itself spontaneously and can turn us into savage beasts. Again, incredibly powerful writing here. It's hard not to feel something personal in this, isn't it? As a Viennese Jew living in a city that had an anti-Semitic mayor, Freud would have had ample opportunity to witness what happened to people when those reaction formations, those mental counter-forces, were temporarily put out of action. And of course there was his experience of the First World War Indeed, what happens when a particular civilization, which should help to maintain these mental counterforces through law and custom, actively seeks to dismantle them? Freud's argument here is uh, sadly prescient, I think, not only to the horrors horrors that were unleashed upon Europe from 1939, but also to the current-day situation in Ukraine.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think it is really important to make those parallels. So Freud argues that it's not easy for us to give up our aggression, that we do not feel comfortable without it, he says. He then goes on to some chillingly prophetic predictions, specifically regarding the fate of the Jewish population of Europe at the time. Would you be able to tell us, Tom, how, do, how does Freud end chapter five?
1: Yeah, the, the notion that aggression is equivalent to comfort that we would not feel comfortable without it is a quite remarkable idea, isn't it? The communists, Freud writes, saw the existence of private property as a corruption of our original well-disposed nature, and that by abolishing private property we could do away with all our evils. But Freud is unconvinced by these claims. Even if we did away with private, private property, we would be left with the sexual relation as a site of potential aggression. And even if we did away with all sexual restrictions, there would still remain the instinct towards aggression. Aggression, then, is a fact of human existence. But how do societies cope with this? Group psychology, the formation of social units, are always maintained by antagonism against another group. Think of postcode rivalry, or the rivalry between local football teams. As soon as the Apostle Paul posited universal love as the core of Christianity, Freud suggests that extreme intolerance against those who remained outside of it became the inevitable consequence. Raw aggression, therefore, is projected outwards. And is directed at the heathen. Freud writes that anti-Semitism acts as a complement to the dream of Germanic world domination and recognizes the idea that the communist civilization in Russia finds its psychological support in the persecution of the bourgeoisie. What will happen, Freud asks when the Soviets have successfully wiped out their bourgeoisie? How prophetic Freud's arguments in this paragraph. Feel now when we're reading it today. If our instinct to aggression is an undeniable fact of human existence, and civilization in part acts as a series of mechanisms that can offer, offer us means of restricting the damage that aggression can cause and diverting it along other channels, then civilization becomes a necessary evil. Whilst we can hope, hope to make small changes that can maybe adjust the balance and allow us more freedoms within its current parameters, civilization wins out at this point as the most effective way of managing our potentially catastrophic impulse for aggression. There seems to be no definitive answer here. Just an attempt to discover an optimal balance between freedom and control, instinct and cultural formation. And this balance is continually in danger of tilting too far either one way or the other. And needs to continually be redressed.
0: Thank you so much, Tom. And just touching upon what you mentioned, that you know, we couldn't have predicted the unfortunate relevance that this paper has today as war rages in Ukraine. You know, we couldn't have predicted this when we began reading it. Um, I can only recommend that everybody interested in reading more works by Freud on a similar subject. Please pick up his paper, Why War? This was a letter exchange that he had in 1933 with Albert Einstein, and it's widely available on the UNESCO website. A huge thank you to my co-host, Tom DeRose, for unpicking these incredible chapters that we've read today, and to our series producer, Carolina Heller.